Welcome to Created to Reign, a production of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. The Cornwall Alliance is a ministry dedicated to helping fulfill the mandate God gave mankind in Genesis 1.28 to subdue and rule the earth in a way that enhances its fruitfulness, its beauty, and its safety for the glory of God and the benefit of our neighbors. I am David Arley Gates, and our topic today is Neighborhood Climate Impacts. In mid-December, the New York Times published an article entitled, The Climate Impact of Your Neighborhood Mapped. Since I'm a geographer by training, the word mapped and the myriad of maps of population centers piqued my interest. Let's face it, I like maps. However, it doesn't take a geographer to interpret what the Times was spewing. As the authors wrote, looking at America's cities, a pattern emerges. Geographers are taught to look for patterns, and so here, the pattern was obvious. The urbanized city centers were where the carbon dioxide footprint was smallest. Indeed, this fact was not missed by the New York Times. The three reporters it took to write this article wrote, quote, Households in denser neighborhoods close to city centers tend to be responsible for fewer planet-warming greenhouse gases, on average, than households in the rest of the country. The Times article cited the fact that suburbia requires more automobile driving since jobs and stores are not nearby. By contrast, residents of Center City can more easily walk, bike, or take public transit. They live in smaller homes, which also requires less energy. But as the Times goes on to write, wealth is also a major contributor to your fossil fuel print. Wealthy citizens have more technological gadgets, and they travel more, all of which requires energy, most likely created from the combustion of fossil fuels. Now, this discussion follows from the Ehrlich-Holdren equation, I equals P times A times T. In this famous equation, I is the environmental impact, which in their view is always negative. That is, the environmental impact is always a bad thing. On the other side of the equal sign are the three terms, population, affluency, and technology. Usually the poorest of citizens live at the city center. Since they are poor and not able to afford technological advances, it stands to reason that their environmental impact will be less. But the other term in the equation is population. It should be obvious that population density is greatest in the city center, and it generally decreases as one moves into suburbia. The Times noted that the poor living in the city center live in much smaller housing, which requires less energy to heat and cool. They live closer to sources of food and clothing and to their jobs, if they're fortunate to have one. This requires less transportation costs, so they can walk, bike, and take the bus, all of which have a smaller fossil fuel print. But wait, let's think about this. In the heart of the city, we have the urban heat island effect, where the city center is warmer than the surrounding countryside. So the effect of warming should be greater in the downtown area than in the hinterlands. Now, wouldn't that put a greater stress on cooling costs and, as a result, 
lead to the production of more carbon dioxide, and the poor are less likely to be able to afford energy-efficient appliances. But nevertheless, the maps do not lie, and apparently the data have spoken. Or is this really data? The first giveaway is the fact that the numbers change at the boundaries of census tracts. Maybe these maps aren't presenting data, but rather simply the results of a model. And maybe what you see isn't confirmation of the theses presented by the New York Times, but instead the results are designed simply to present the theses that the researchers wanted you to believe. Well, what goes into this model? If one continues to read the article, we are told, quote, the maps above are based on research from the University of California, Berkeley, that estimates what are known as consumption-based emissions, unquote. So let's take a look at these consumption-based emissions from UC Berkeley, shall we? The research comes from the Berkeley Energy and Climate Institute. If you take a look at their report, and I'll include the links in the podcast notes, the original research in 2008 focused on San Francisco, but their research now has been extended to a number of urban centers around the United States. In 2008, the only variable used to estimate carbon dioxide producing consumption rates was income. Income? Well, of course. No wonder the map looks like a negative image of income. The poor do not produce as much carbon dioxide as do more affluent people. Therefore, carbon dioxide rates should be low in the city and higher in suburbia. This also mimics the Ehrlich-Holdren argument that to reduce environmental impact, you need to keep people from becoming affluent. But the new research notes that the 2008 results were flawed because only income was used. So in 2015, the research was revised to include both income and household size to estimate consumption of food, goods, and services, and hence the production of carbon dioxide. But in 2020, their research became more sophisticated. It is now based on demographics, including income, household size, race, and education, on home characteristics, including home size, home ownership, structure type, heating fuel, on travel behavior, including vehicle ownership, commuter mode and times, on geographic variables, including population density and weather, and including energy prices. Apparently, someone at UC Berkeley has now learned about geographic information systems. There's an extensive appendix in the report that attempts to explain just how the model works. Missing are discussions, for example, of how race figures into the calculations. Assuming all other variables are equal, what differentiates the carbon dioxide production of an ethnic population relative to a white population, for example? Nevertheless, much discussion is afforded to relating these other variables to income. For example, there's a long explanation of how they obtained accurate figures on gourmet beef and veal consumption relative to simple ground chuck. 
But the real issue is that in the report, the concern is not how much carbon dioxide a consumer of tenderloin will produce relative to one that consumes chuck steak. The concern is simply in their price. So after the smoke clears, the research really relates your carbon dioxide production to income after all. The rest is merely window dressing. Thus, both the Berkeley Report and the Times article use fancy maps to catch your eye. But in the end, they simply reiterate the Ehrlich-Holdren equation to protect the environment, keep the people poor, and technologically disadvantaged. The maps do not prove this adage. They have been designed to regurgitate it. Thank you for listening to Created to Rain, produced by the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify and share the episode link with your friends. To learn more or support our ministry with a 100% tax-deductible donation, please visit cornwallalliance.org. Until next time, I am David Arley Gates, and may God richly bless you.